In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins, and for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. One of Jesus's shorter, um, but not for that reason less powerful parables that he tells is of a Pharisee and a tax collector who go up to the temple to pray. And you'll remember the parable. I'm not going to read it now, but just it's enough to recall it and paraphrase it that they're both there in the temple praying, and the Pharisee uh, gives thanks to God because he's not like other men. He's doing what needs to be done. He's paying his tithes, he's praying, he's generous, he's ticking the boxes. Uh, He's really achieving, in a complete way, the kind of virtuous, uh, demanding life that he understood uh, his religion to ask of him, and he gives thanks to God for that. In a particular way, he looks at the tax collector and says, and I'm also glad that I'm not like this fellow there. There's other people who aren't doing what they should be doing. Thank you, God, that I'm not that way. Whereas a tax collector, um, Jesus says in the parable, doesn't even dare to lift his eyes to heaven. He feels himself so unworthy and wretched, and he beats his, his chest, and he, he asks God for forgiveness because he feels himself to be unworthy and to be a sinner. And Jesus ends the parable by simply saying they both left the temple, but the tax collector went home justified. In other words, aligned with God, united with God, close to him. Now, a superficial reading of this parable, I think, is to see this as a morality tale between the tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee we easily are kind of turned off by, uh, self-righteous, arrogant, judgmental. And we say, okay, well, that's bad. Don't be that. Don't be self-righteous. Don't be judgmental. Whereas the tax collector was self-effacing, humble, not presumptuous. That's good. That's the way that we should be, right? We could kind of sometimes shoehorn Jesus's parables into little lessons on what we're supposed to do. Simple morality tales. But there's actually a deeper lesson in the parable that has to do with the kind of uh, attitude that we should foster in our relationship with God. And the kind of attitude that we actually foster might be a little bit closer to the Pharisee than we would like to imagine. And that's because of this. Although none of us, I'm going to be generous here and say none of us, is is kind of deliriously vain as to kind of walk around thinking, I thank you, God, that I'm not like the rest of people and I'm so much better than everyone else and I'm just so happy with my overabundance of virtue and moral achievement. Thank you for making me perfect. None of us, I think, praise that way. But sometimes we can think that we should arrive at a point where that's what our prayer could be like. In other words, that I could get to a point where I would be really doing my prayer well, 
I would be loving the people I find difficult with. I'd be very generous to my family members. I would be really sacrificing at work. In other words, that there, you know, I'd have to, if I were to go to confession, I'd have to just go to the priest and say, look, I, there's just nothing really. You know, I'm really, it's going incredibly well. And um, don't know what to say to you. you know? um, now, that doesn't actually happen to us. But sometimes, if we're honest, isn't that what we're aspiring to? And since we don't actually achieve it, we feel disappointed with ourselves. Not in the way that the tax collector is, we'll come back to him, but just because we're not actually getting to that point where all things are well. Yesterday, the sixth Sunday of Easter, the gospel reading, as we've been hearing in this enduring Eastertide, Jesus appears, uh, uh, and, and well, it speaks many times about peace, but yesterday in Mass was his words of the Last Supper, where he says to the apostles, peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, I give my peace to you. Now, the peace that Jesus is offering, the reality of it, is not something that we will permanently feel at the level of perception, sensing it, to kind of be in a permanent Zen flow where everything just slides right off of us. We're just, just in bliss as we go through the day, all through the week, and we just keep moving, right? But do we sometimes think that that's how it should be? And then when it's not, there's something wrong? Something wrong in the world, something wrong with God, something wrong in me. In other words, we have, without our realizing it so often, this implicit idea that really the ideal would be as if I never needed to be forgiven. That's the ideal circumstance. But that doesn't seem to be what Jesus is pointing out in the parable. Because the person who goes up and prays and recognizes his need for forgiveness, in that moment, he actually feels subjectively himself to be a bit of a mess. And he's not happy with what he sees. He's not shooting off fireworks. He's not celebrating and saying, this is it's wonderful to be me. He's asking for forgiveness. But precisely in that moment when he is least pleased with himself, he is united to God, which is his peace. He's aligned with him. He's justified, which is what matters in the end. I mentioned this parable and to set it up because I'd like to just go through different moments in the gospel and help us try to savor and uh, circle around a very important idea that I think we need to burn into our minds. And it's the idea that it's a beautiful thing to be forgiven. Now, there might be a part of us that bristles a little bit at that because we're like, well, okay, but, you know, but it's not good to sin either. Okay. St. Paul had to deal with that with the first Christians as well when he was celebrating justification and all this sort of stuff. And he was responding to some people who said, oh, well, yeah, it's so great. So let's sin even more so that we can be forgiven even more. And then hurrah, and won't that be wonderful? And St. Paul's like, no, that's not exactly it either. But 
to be honest, I think it's kind of a, it's a, it's a misplaced fear that by over-celebrating forgiveness, we wind up encouraging sin. Because um, anyone who's actually experiencing forgiveness, we see this in the gospel, we see this in the lives of the saints, and I think we know it from our own experience, that person is not going to instantly turn around and want to go back to what they've been forgiven of. Actual experience of forgiveness is an experience that sends a person out on mission, on conversion. But for us to realize that, that uh, we should not be disappointed with the fact that we have to ask God for forgiveness. And to go even deeper, everything that God does with us, all of his love, his closeness, his, his grace, his presence in our lives, all of that is in the tone of mercy unmerited gift. God's relationship to us as human beings who have not yet been fully redeemed is not a relationship of a peer. He's not loving us because he's compelled to by some merit on our part. He is loving us out of sheer, unadulterated mercy. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, at all times. And if we turn to the Gospels, we see that the people who Jesus delights in, the people that he responds to and blesses and identifies himself with, are the people who get this point. Who are maybe overcoming a little bit of resistance at the beginning, but actually come to say, I want to be someone who's forgiven. And they are not someone who says, you know, I'm really someone who doesn't need to be forgiven. Because my aspiration is to be that kind of person. And so many of the problems with the Pharisees is not, and they can be caricaturized a little bit uh, in homilies and spiritual writings and just you know, even sometimes maybe some of the Gospels themselves. Of, you know, they, they weren't just pompous fools. They were men who sought reassurance about their salvation. And they sought that reassurance by specific regulations and and, and criteria and rules and having them very clear. And if you do this, I'm grant. Because the goal was, I want to get to a point where I feel certain, I'm, I feel confident that I'm in control. I'm owning this. Got it. I'm in a good place. Whereas the crippled, the lepers, the prostitutes, the poor, the apostles, some of the Pharisees and even some of the Sadducees as well who come to Jesus are the people who are willing to say, Lord, heal me, forgive me. I am not in control. I need a salvation that doesn't originate in me. And what they discover is something very deeply healing, restorative of their dignity, something that ennobles them and becomes a source of joy. Think about the woman who comes to wash Jesus' feet, breaking into, in an extraordinarily dramatic way, the dinner party at Simon the Pharisee's house. She was known to be a sinner. 
As soon as she walked in, everyone looked at her with disdain, whether it was through, doesn't specify, but it, the kind of sin, that it, it wasn't stealing biscuits at the grocery. It was something that would have gotten her a certain reputation. But she comes in and she's not worried about how she appears before Jesus. She simply wants to be forgiven. She, she almost revels in the fact that she's looked upon in a scornful way. She doesn't care. And sobbing and weeping with her tears, she washes Jesus' feet. And with her hair, she dries Jesus' feet. And it was incredibly out of place, extravagant. The apostles were raising their eyebrows. People were looking at the floor. Others were cringing. People felt awkward, and she didn't care. She just wanted to be forgiven. Now, this is a very dramatic, and I would say exorbitant, expression of this desire, and it's not something that I think exteriorly we need to necessarily imitate. But the spirit of it is something that Jesus praises something he responds to. He defends her. He elevates her before everyone who is at that dinner party is an example of someone who knows how to love and therefore be aligned with God. Lord, how often in my Christian life my worry, my frustration, my anxiety is because I'm not performing the way I would like to perform. I don't see myself as the way that I would like to be. I'm looking at myself. Lord, give us the grace to break free of that, that self-measuring, that self-concern, and give us a simplicity a simplicity that allows us to, like this woman, break in and fall at your feet and ask for forgiveness and put everything on the table. I mean, she had no, she had no assurance that Jesus was going to forgive her. She wasn't following a, a, a procedure, you know, that a friend told her, that, hey, I've heard if you go in and cry and wash his feet, he'll forgive you. It, it wasn't a routine. It wasn't some sort of ritual that she was perfunctorily performing. It was sincere and heartfelt, and she did it out of the freedom of her heart. And we have a certain form and, and formality in the sacrament of confession. It's flexible enough. And there is a, a very clear sacramental path there. But do I try to approach it with a sincere desire of of wanting to be forgiven, overcoming that disappointment that I feel in myself. Fundamentally, Lord, we ask you to give us the grace to help us see and appreciate the beauty of being forgiven. And I emphasize this word beauty because beauty is attractive. Beauty draws us. And precisely because we have this resistance to being forgiven, this, this sense that somehow, mm, all things being equal, it would be better if I didn't have to be relying on his mercy. We need to be drawn to it, to see the beauty of it. Think about Peter. Peter and his vocation. 
Now talk about being put on the, in the limelight, having a spotlight on you if you're Peter. Jesus told him, you are the rock. You are the cornerstone of the new Israel. I am refounding Israel and all of salvation history is reaching its climax in me and my ministry. And I have chosen you to be the rock of this new Israel that will be the vehicle of salvation until the end of time. That's you, Peter. That's pretty, you know. I don't know how much Peter understood at the moment when he heard all of this. He understood enough to tussle and argue with the others about who had pride of place, who was first, who should receive honor. But Peter had that that sense of responsibility, that sense of I can't fail, that sense of I have to be up to the mark. And at the Last Supper, very much filled with this enthusiasm and in this, this feeling of I can't fail, I can't be someone who comes up short or betrays, he swears solemnly to Jesus, even if everyone else should, should run away, I will die for you. And he meant it. He felt that enthusiasm. That's what he wanted to be. But we know what happens after Jesus' arrest, as Peter musters up the courage at a distance to follow, but all the while being filled with fear and with panic. Not only does he deny Jesus, but he swears an oath, condemning himself, that he never even knew who Jesus was. And he does it precisely in the moment when Jesus most needed that connection, that that union of friendship and loyalty and fidelity. Peter's sin was a deeply personal sin. Very, very personal. It wasn't just a sin of weakness, you know. Having, you know, a bit too much wine and saying some things I shouldn't have said and I feel bad. No, it was, it was really personal. And what does Peter do? He does what Judas doesn't do. He weeps. And he's willing to be forgiven. And what happens to Peter is beautiful. And it's so beautiful that Jesus doesn't recalibrate. He doesn't say, well, mm, okay, you were going to be the rock, but turns out you're sand. So why don't we just kind of like, I don't know, we'll get you like a, I don't know, a desk job somewhere, you know? And, uh, you know, you can be providing support from Jerusalem when everybody else is going out and doing the real work. Because, you know, Peter, you turned out to be inadequate. You got a, a very poor review on your performance. That isn't Jesus' reaction. First of all, Jesus forgives Peter after the resurrection. He appears to them. He says, peace be with you. The most direct, powerful absolution ever given. Jesus standing before Peter, resurrected. The wounds, the scars in his hands still before him present. But even though Peter was forgiven, he still needed that shame, that humiliation to be healed because it still kept Peter at a bit of a distance from God, made it awkward for him. So after the miraculous catch of fish, the Sea of Tiberias, after he's walking, just the two of them, we remember the scene, they're walking, and and Jesus turns to Peter and he says, do you love me more than these? Yes, 
feed my sheep. He reconfirms him in his original calling. The beauty of forgiveness. When we need to be forgiven, when we need to start over, when we, we realize that we've come up short, either through weakness or because we have intentionally put our foot in it, and perhaps even in a serious way, grave sin. Even in that moment, Jesus isn't pivoting away from us. He's not rethinking his love or his attitude towards us and saying, oh gosh, well, we do that. That's how we react. That's our attitude. But it's important that we don't project it onto God. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways, says the Lord. We need to avoid projecting our small-minded, judgmental, crabby, miserliness onto God. And in adoration and in wonder, turn to him with the expectation of mercy. And perhaps, we have a few minutes left, perhaps most lavish of all, the story that Jesus tells of the father with two sons. One who asks for his inheritance and goes and wastes it. Again, turning his back on his father, despising him, rejecting his own identity, rejecting his home, walking away from it all. The list could go on. Until one day, out of hunger and just being just utterly miserable, he figures, well, at least I can go back and get something to eat. And he goes back. And this is the lavish part of the story, that the the father refuses to make his son go through some sort of humiliating ritual in order to be reconciled. He runs out to greet him. And where perhaps you and I would have done at least a little bit of browbeating, you know, a little bit of tut-tutting, you know, a little bit of passive-aggressive emotion there, you know, letting him know that you hurt me and, you know, and I'm, well, it'll be a while before I fully let you back into my affections, you know. You're going to pay for this, be a little bit cold and distant. He literally throws himself onto his son, hugging him and kissing him, frenetically calling the other servants, organize a party now, not next month, not next week, not, hey, we're having the, you know, the Goldsteins over for lunch it's Sunday, why don't you come with? No, it's now we're going to have a celebration. This is why we can understand the reaction of the older brother. It was a very familiar reaction. Wait a second, I've been doing everything that I'm supposed to be doing here. I haven't been messing up. I haven't disobeyed you. I haven't failed. Where's my party? Where's my young goat being killed for me? Where where is this? And he stays back. He goes into the, the outer darkness, into the coldness, and he resists the warmth of that forgiveness because there is something for us in our fallenness a little bit scandalous about God's mercy. A little bit scandalous. It just seems too easy too over the top. But there are categories that 
that simply do not apply to the reality of what God is actually doing, but it has to do with his greatness, his goodness. The other parable that Jesus tells of the workers who've been out working all day long, and some of them have been working all day long through the heat, and some have just come for the last hour and are working. Remember the parable? And they all start queuing up to get paid. And the fellow who's just been working for an hour, he shows up and he gets a day's wage. And the guy who's there for two hours gets a day's wage. So the guy who's been there all day long is coming and he's like, well, I'm going to get a little bit more because I've been here all day long. And lo and behold, he gets the same thing. And he gets annoyed. And basically, Jesus' response in the parable is to defend his own generosity. To defend his own generosity. As we consider these parables, and there's so much more that we said about the parable of the prodigal son, but just it's enough for us to mention and to call it to our mind, and I encourage you on your own to pray about it, that on the one hand, we resist that harsh severity that perhaps we most often have towards ourselves in face of our failures, of our temptations, of our weakness, a kind of harshness and a severity that thinks it's better for us to knock ourselves around, to put ourselves in a corner, than to actually turn in simplicity and say, Lord, forgive me. And to accept that forgiveness, to let it flourish and luxuriate within our souls. We need to avoid that tendency of the older brother with ourselves and with other people, and with other people, Forgiveness, generosity, reconciliation is not going soft on the moral life. It's not selling out on the the real demands of following Christ, taking up our cross and following him, walking in the truth. When Jesus forgives those who are killing him on the cross, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. He's not becoming a relativist. He's being faithful to the truth of his own love and dealing with that sin in his own soul and in his own flesh on the cross, and that's what he extends to us in the virtue of forgiveness. And finally, for us to be attracted, to see the beauty of being forgiven. I just mentioned a few stories. There's others that we could talk about. We could, uh, people, the, the, the sick, the lame, maybe not because of sin, but just because of weakness or infirmity, which is a, is a sign or a symbol of, of kind of moral infirmities or sicknesses that we might have, how Jesus welcomes them and they rejoice and they're delighted in their being healed. We need to burn those images into our imaginations, have them present, Because when we need forgiveness, what the enemy of our souls will try to do is make us feel panicky about that need, uneasy about it, deeply humiliated. And the more humiliated, in the worst sense of the word, we feel, the harder it will be to actually be forgiven. But if in our prayer and just at the level of conviction, we, we are convinced that being forgiven is a beautiful thing. We will experience our Lord's delight in us. The delight of the shepherd who goes after the sheep that is lost. He leaves the 99 and he goes after the one that's lost and he gathers it up and he rejoices. 
There's more rejoicing among the angels in heaven over one lost sinner. This is, this is the, the attitude Jesus mentions over and over in parables and his actions because he's trying to change the way that we think to align it more with his own attitude so that the communion that he desires with us, which is the fulfillment of our lives, might grow bit by bit in this life as we struggle through our very real weaknesses and brokenness and inner divisions. We struggle through all of that, relying on his grace, relying on his mercy, so that we come in this life and perfectly in the next to intimacy and communion with him. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.